Once Upon a Time, Season 5, Episode 2 is over, but we are just getting started here on Once Upon a Recap. Hello, all you magical people out there. My name is Mike Bloom, one of the co-hosts of Once Upon a Recap, and I am joined, as always, by the man who is currently communicating with me through a jewel in my necklace. It is the one and only Kurt Clark. Kurt, how you doing? Doing pretty good. Uh, solid, solid second episode of, of Once Upon a Time Season 5. There's one small shadow on the horizon that we'll address when we get to it. Uh, it's a really good episode, I thought. Yeah, I, I, I'm really excited about these two episodes. Uh, I'm a little wary because I'll admit the past year, uh, our two half seasons, the first two episodes were really interesting, but then we saw like three episodes down the line. It would just say, oh, no, now there's something else that's really the big threat. So I'm wondering, you know, they have, we have a really good thing going right now with Camelot and the Dark Swan stuff, but I'm concerned as to whether it's going to be all for naught when something bigger comes about in a few weeks. Yeah, like if Dark Swan gets settled in episode four and there's something new, that's going to be kind of a disappointment. As much as I said last time, I'm not a fan of Dark Swan. Again, that's only because I love the character of Emma. And I hate to see her be bad. So it's more a it's more reflective of my attachment to the character than anything that's actually wrong with the plot. So what are your thoughts on Dark Swan thus far? Because I'll admit something. I mean, maybe it's because I've seen we've seen Rumpelstiltskin as the dark one for so long. And I love the delicious glee that Robert Carlyle uses when he plays the role. To me, Emma's dark one is more stoic and much less playful, which makes her a little less fun, in my opinion. Um, yeah, we, we don't really know as much as we know about the rules of portals. We don't really know the rules of someone becoming the Dark One. Gold is really the only person where we've seen a fair bit of him pre-Dark One and a lot of him post-Dark One. Um, and even to some extent, you have to look at uh, almost you have to almost distinguish between Rumpelstiltskin Dark One and Mr. Gold Dark One. It's almost two different flavors of Dark One. Um, so it's I, I, I'm still I'm okay with it. Uh, you know. Truth be told, Rumpelstiltskin grated on my nerves sometimes. And I do think that if you have Rumpelstiltskin as uh, kind of this this inner monologue or inner voice for uh, Dark Swan slash Emma, at least on the on the uh, uh, Enchanted Forest side of things, you do have to have some dis- some separation in character there. I guess she hasn't become the Dark One fully in, in the Enchanted Forest uh, realm. I would probably be really annoyed if it was... Uh, if, if Emma started ask, acting like the Rumpelstiltskin we know. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm not saying her to go, like, full Rumpelstiltskin. Um, I guess I just want her to, like, I don't know, as much as, you know, it's all about her trying not to sway onto the dark side, when she's actually Dark Swan, I want her to, yeah. like, have some fun with it. You know, like, she does have little quips here and there, you know, her her talking to Regina and Hook specifically this episode, but I feel like for now she's just taking it so seriously you know she's she's basically like treating this like uh like jeremy collins would any situation yeah maybe we should and just for 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 naming purposes like we talk about rumple skill skin and then the dark one and mr gold i guess emma emma is currently in camelot but in present day it's dark swan in storybook that might help yeah Yeah. so in terms yeah maybe she's still Growing into the role again, we don't know how much Dark Swan. Uh, at what point Dark Swan becomes Dark Swan, or at what point Emma becomes Dark Swan in Camelot? Um, and I don't know. Maybe it's just like again, like a different flavor. She seems like it, she's a lot about you know satisfying her baser needs. Um, 
she hasn't necessarily fully grown into the whole the whole bargaining thing and, and making deals. Is that a, is that truly kind of who Rumpelstiltskin was at his root before he became the dark one? Um, maybe it just affects everybody a little bit differently. So uh, she's she's a little bit of a, of a uh, you know satisfying the the is it the id. Um, ego yeah I guess, uh, well i guess the the it is the more like loose and fancy free section yeah. of, of the mind that's the only one i really remember i unfortunately did not pay yeah. too much attention to my remedial psychology classes uh but let's let's start diving in here uh because as much as we want to talk about dark swan this well, was really or this is really a regina episode which i personally enjoyed i thought they dealt with some really fun stuff here because i think one of the big questions after this whole thing happened with Emma taking the Dark One's responsibilities was like, okay, you know, Regina basically got spared here. And I think we, we uh, contemplated a little bit like, will Regina become the new savior? How will she react to all this? And we really got to see a lot of that fleshed out here, which I was excited about. But let's jump back to Camelot. Let's get all the Camelot stuff taken care of first. And we pick up right where we left off with the previous episode's flashbacks. Everyone is there in Camelot, and we have the introductions of one of our new characters this episode, Kurt. We are introduced to Guinevere, Arthur's wife at this point, I'm assuming, or just his thing on the side? I'm not sure at this point. Well, he does, I think, refer to her as the queen. Uh, so I, I'm i assuming that they are, that this been made official, uh, that they are married, and I don't know why I didn't see this coming last time. Of course we're going to have to meet Guinevere if they are in Indeed, in Camelot. Guinevere with the uh, somewhat implacable accent, I would say. Like, slightly Dornish, almost. <laughs> yeah, and, and for, I had to do a double take there and make sure this wasn't Marion. There was some, the similar, there's a similar look to them at first, but no, this de- definitely is separate from Marion. Yeah, so uh, we get some more stuff here about the prophecy, about how, you know, they've been waiting for almost a decade. So that sort of answers our questions about, like, it's placing it a little bit into the timeline. I think at this point, I think Blancelot is dead, and I believe when he was shown in the flashback, he was alive at that point. So that means, unfortunately, I, I personally don't think we're getting any more Blancelot. Uh, yeah, okay, that's that's a good point. So yeah, that the when they removed the sword from the stone, that was pre uh, all of the curses, and that was uh, yeah. the good old the good old days. Yeah, we have not seen any any uh, Blancelot this at this point. Right, right now, we've pretty much got Guinevere, Arthur. And Percival. Hopefully for uh, now. <laughs> for now. Uh, and yeah, they're gonna they're going to throw a ball in their honor, and apparently these can be set up in pretty much an instant. Oh, balls are easy to 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 develop, I guess. Well, uh, it, yeah, it, it takes uh, it takes a few years to develop balls. <laughs> um, but if, I mean, Violet talks about later on that little girl that like they hold these all the time. So I'm assuming it yeah. actually might be as slipshod as you're alluding to that they're like. Okay, balls. It's like an organizing like a conference at the office to be like, oh yeah, balls happening. Great, let's get everyone together. Let's uh, let's make it happen. Casual Friday, balls Tuesday. <laughs> I would want to be part of that office. Uh, yeah. We get we get our only glimpse of Zelina this episode. I'm not sure where she disappears to the rest of the episode, but uh, we kind of I guess tr- acknowledge at least this little plot hole that I talked about last week, where like why she's there in the first place when she starts to like threaten to tell everybody their true past. But Regina very quickly shuts her up uh regina has a lot of the, the you know the magic rules are obviously very loose on this show but i feel like regina uh did a lot of the cases in this episode where she sort of just like flicks her hands nonchalantly and things are like resolved like when she un when she unfreezes sneezy in an instant or like when she shuts up selena here and solves that problem uh so regina has uh she has 
very convenient magical powers, I'll say. Yeah, it goes a little bit to last week where I was like, well, I had to remind myself, this isn't Heroes where everybody has one power and when they start to do something different, you wait, wait a minute, that's not what they can do. She's a witch or an evil queen or, or queen now with magical powers and this it, it runs a wider range than we should necessarily uh, ex- be expected to, to, to look forward to. Uh, but we, we'll get to it. But I was surprised when she just so easily unfroze uh, Sneezy. I thought that could have been. I thought that could have been an entire like you know eight eight episode webisode arc. Um, but okay, no, that that problem's actually solved now. Yeah, though I will say like I mean that we start the episode off uh, in action, you know, outside the chronological aspects with the dwarf driving you know to the town line with Sneezy and Torn. I believe Regina's with them. She could very easily just do it right there, right then. But I guess she wanted to make them pay for their insolence to try to force people over the town line. That's a really good point. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's kind of meta in terms of the, the dwarves are actually saying, well, another curse, and we have no idea what this means in regards to crossing the town line. So maybe it'll cure Sneezy. And, and sure enough, rather than, you know, they ultimately want to, was they're thinking about pushing Sneezy across the town lines in case that will cure him. Mm-hmm. They, so the queen would rather that they sacrifice one of the dwarves, Dopey, uh, than actually her cure the Sneezy right then and there, which I, I didn't really put two and two together until you brought it up. But that's, that's kind of, maybe she just wasn't thinking about it, or maybe she was just annoyed by Dopey. I don't know. Well, much like Dopey, which we'll talk about in a little bit, yes. we find another person that is faced a similar conundrum as Dopey in that Merlin has not gone off anywhere. He has just been turned into a giant tree in the middle of the courtyard. Yeah, and I looked a little bit into uh, the into the Arthurian legends. We had somebody reach out to us on Twitter to let us know that that Sir Kay uh, is that was actually what Arthur's brother. Uh, Arthur's uh, yeah, like or like one of somebody in his steed at some point. Yeah, um, so I, I did take a look at this, and there is there is you know part of Arthurian legend is that uh, I think it's Nimue, who's someone that uh, was Merlin's, I believe, apprentice. Uh, don't hate me on Twitter for this, uh, but eventually at one point, one of the branches of no pun intended, Arthurian legend does turn Merlin into a tree. So uh, uh, this, this this is following along with the with the. Uh, yeah, that, that, this is uh, something that I learned when I was, again, studying the Arthurian legend back in, like, sixth grade. And there, there are many, like, theories as to how, like, Merlin, quote-unquote, died. But one of the theories is that, like, he gets uh, turned into a tree. So, basically, that is the hero's current motive outside of the ball is to say, okay, how are we going to get Merlin out of this tree? But to, Arthur is, you know, he's elated to see them there because he knows that the Savior is amongst them. And this is when we get... Uh, basically, the crux of the flashback, which is that to kind of protect Emma from possibly utilizing her dark magic, Regina lies and says that she is the savior. And now in sort of like a Three's Company-esque way, everyone now works to kind of keep the lie up a bit to make sure that everyone thinks she's the savior. Yeah. And I'm wondering if one of the things they're exploring here or that we're going to eventually find out is that... Uh, the savior is less a title that is thrust upon you and more something that you can earn through deed and through 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 effort. I mean, you know, Regina has been trying for the last couple of seasons now to be the better person uh, than, than she had been historically. So I think one of the things we'll see here is either, you know, can you can you fake it till you make it uh, when it comes to being the savior? Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, there's a line later that Emma talks about where she says, like, there are no good and good and bad versions of ourselves, right. which I think uh, describes these 
this sort of situation, this episode completely that, and this is basically describes Regina's character entirely. She started off as the main antagonist of season one and the main villain. But then once we got to find out more about her, we realized that like, there really isn't like an evil queen version of Regina and a good version of Regina. There's just Regina in general. And I think her exploring these savior potentials, whether she sort of, you know, back, back, uh, ass backwards into it, uh, was, is really something fun to explore her specifically over the next few flashback scenes or the next one specifically when Regina and Emma kind of get in a, one of two arguments they get in over the course of this episode mm. about um, about Regina deciding to take this responsibility because whether they, the heroes like to admit it or not, I think implicitly they really do not trust her to be the savior. Yeah. And it, it is, it is also here where it is revealed to the, uh, the Camelotians, or whatever we want to call them, uh, Camelotians, you know, Camelotians, uh, that uh, <laughs> you know, personal. They, they hadn't really revealed why they were so eagerly seeking Merlin, and you know, Percival does ask them. They say, "Well, you know, it's to basically you know deal with our our Dark One problems." Um, and oh, say no more. So yeah, then then it becomes the awkward point of okay, so which of you is the savior? Because obviously it's amongst you, and you can free him. Although. One thing that we don't really address is the concept of does one ever actually lose savior status? Mm. Can can Emma actually be the dark one and the savior simultaneously? Uh, that's a question that I have going through my head. Yeah, I, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. And I do think we even see in this episode that their dark magic can be used for good purposes. I mm-hmm. feel like with these characters, though, the heroes that we currently have, they are not of that mindset whatsoever. I'm sure there were a couple of instances in the past couple seasons where Regina's dark magic has helped them, but personally, I feel like they're of the mindset of like, no, Emma's capable of using this extreme dark magic. Even if it's going to lead to good results, we don't want to tamper with that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll... It's to dip your toe in the use of power as little as possible, Emma. So the action really gets, uh, the ball really gets rolling here as a knight, which we find out later his name is Percival, uh, who he looks a lot like uh, Eric from True Blood. Like I had to kind of do a double take when he did this one shot where he was like, he was, his head was leaned diagonally and he was leaning in to talk to them because he looked a lot like uh, Alexander Skarsgård in that moment, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't. Not. But he goes to Regina and offers her a necklace with this uh, giant purple jewel in it that Arthur, quote unquote, told him to give to her to wear to the ball that night. Um, and then as the Charmings let Doc babysit, which good, we got some we got some dwarf screen time this episode. That's always good. Uh, I also like the idea that Doc doesn't want to go to the ball because he doesn't want to be Grumpy's wingman. And I can only imagine what lines grumpy is having doc use to try to to try to get with women yeah um i, I imagine being, being and I, I'm stopped referring to um uh grumpy as leroy also i just i refuse to use the leroy nomenclature even though i know that that was a whole thing about him actually being leroy um yeah i, I don't think it, i don't think being grumpy's wingman would be at all pleasant or enjoyable I, I think I'd much rather go to the go to the go to the bar with Dopey. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, Dopey can totally. I mean, he's like the the silent but silent but sturdy guy that can. I mean, he might have to do a little bit of miming, but I feel like he's a he's less liable to like say something to screw you up or embarrass you in front of somebody. 
Exactly. <laughs> By the way, uh, s- small tangent. Uh, a few people may know that uh, Kurt once the uh, I n- I'd never seen Seinfeld before, and so once it all became uh, released via Hulu, I've been slowly going through the episodes and listening to the corresponding uh, coverage uh, here on Post Show Recaps of Seinfeld with Robin Akiva. And the last episode I saw, which is an episode in season three called The Parking Space, the main antagonist in it was the actor who plays Leroy slash Grumpy. Yeah, he's. You, you, I see him in a, in a few things every now and then. Um, he's probably actually the only dwarf I, I do recognize, but uh, yeah, he's 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 made his rounds. Yeah, and I mean, he was he definitely. I'd say uh, he's uh, seen better numbers on a scale uh, back in those days. But he <laughs> he was still bald. Uh, his eyes were not as sunken. I probably didn't recognize him at first because he didn't have a beard. But he was still uh, he was he was as loud as Grumpy is. Uh, Grumpy is definitely less annoying than this character was. Yeah, I believe Lee Ehrenberg is the actor's name. Yes, that's Lee Ehrenberg. So, Kurt, let's uh, let's get to the oh boy, let's get to the reason why Regina does not want to go to the ball. (laughs) She sort of uh, pulls this whole teenager routine when Snow and when Snow and Charming are talking to Doc here. She's like, "Well, I'm not going to the ball anyway." Uh, They're like, "Oh, come on, Regina, why not?" They're sort of like treating her like uh, their own daughter, which is a little strange, but this family tree is so. Uh, screwed up in general and might as well be that case but regina does not want to go to the ball because she is embarrassed because she cannot dance i have a bullet point here like this is maybe one of the strangest out of the blue storylines and it didn't last longer than it needed to thankfully yeah i mean how how do you feel kurt that now in this day and age we can compare the evil queen to the character of willis from footloose yeah it's 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 great that the writers are making that connection. Um, you know, David giving her dance lessons was uh, kind of awkward. I was starting to have amazing race flashbacks. I'm wondering if she was going to have to dance on the side of a wall. Yeah. Uh, do they do the tango? Um, I, I, I did like that uh, the little nod that, you know, well, you can't dance in that dress. You have to practice dancing in what you'd wear. And then she wears the old evil queen outfit. And he's like, well, that's not going to work either. Let's give you a good. Let's, let's get you something more appropriate to not being evil. And I liked, I liked, I liked non-evil dance gown Regina. Yeah, I will say I, I love. I maybe just because I'm a big fan of like medieval slash Renaissance costumes in general, but I love all their Camelot outfits. I was a little sad in that in Storybrooke they immediately changed out of them once they landed back in Granny's because I, I mean I'm just a big fan of those outfits. To see Regina in there, I mean to have like Lana Perea really, really like let her hair down and you know I think she's. Correct me if I'm wrong. Like she dressed that way when she was like back when she was dating Daniel, the stable boy. So it's it's fun to like have her revisit those types of outfits. Yeah, but it was also nice that they they didn't. I mean, that they stuck to what they would have done naturally when they got back to home. Like if I was stuck in like kind of some itchy medieval garb, if I got back home, the first thing I would do was you know throw on the old throw on the old hoodie and uh, and some jeans. <laughs> you're not ha- you're not having an Elsa mentality, Kurt. No, 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 no. <laughs> Yeah, so as uh, David teaches Regina how to dance, it turns out that the very conspicuous jewel was, surprise, surprise, very conspicuous as Percival is using the jewel to kind of spy on them. Uh, And I guess he had overheard the entire conversation where Regina had come in and said, like, I can't keep up the ruse. I can't, you know, come off that that I'm the savior. So he's kind of onto the game. I wonder, was this plan entirely Percival's or did he try to bring Arthur in on it? Um, 
here's the thing. As like I know one of the, the big uh villainesses in Arthurian legend is Morgan Le Fay. Mm-hmm. And I had I had thought that we might be seeing her behind this when we first started seeing this kind of smoky cauldron. Uh, there's no evidence that that's actually going to be the case. But I would, if if somebody was kind of directing Percival to do this, I think it would have to be somebody that we haven't seen yet in a, a, some sort of evil villain. I don't think that there was like Arthur and Percival in cahoots on this. So this is just like a rogue agent almost. Uh, well, I think I think like I said, I think he still might be servicing some. Uh, evil villain that we haven't seen yet uh i don't necessarily he's just i don't think he'd be just doing i don't think he'd just be doing this on his own i i would if he's not doing this in service to someone above him or to some again some some villain we have yet to see then and i think it actually feels a little false i i actually am really enjoying this even though again percival was short-lived it's sort of pairing this with the last flashback we've seen with Arthur and Guinevere. I'm excited about it because I feel like our new characters have a propensity to really cooperate with our heroes and they're doing that a little bit in Storybrooke but to kind of see them not necessarily in opposition but to see like oh Arthur is actually a lot more onto them than he lets off and he's trying to actually use them to make Excalibur whole is a, a really smart way to take new characters and have them kind of work towards the same purpose but along different paths. But it seems to me that we, it, it seems to me that um, he didn't know that the Dark One was involved in this at all. Like, did it, like, it's like, until it's all the characters, he comes up with open arms, brings up the camel, but until uh, the characters tell Percival and company that they are, they want to find Merlin, to help you know, banish Dark One, I don't think he even knew that the dagger was potentially involved in this whole thing. It just seems to be kind of fortuitous that, hey, uh, this might be something we have to do. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe, I'm, maybe I am drawing too many connections because now that I think about it, uh, I, I guess it just happened because he, I think he, he wants to utilize them to actually get Merlin right so then he can find the Dark One. He doesn't even realize that the Dark One is in their midst. Uh, yeah, I'm actually... I'm actually not completely i can't remember from the first episode you know uh old age uh <laughs> uh why i mean other than the fact that merlin is kind of arthur's mentor um i can't remember exactly if there's a specific reason why merlin wanted to you know uh free why why arthur wanted to free merlin i mean as far as they know there's no dark one in the enchanted forest anymore the dark one vanished and went to some other world uh, mm. the, um, so I'm not sure why Arthur wants to free Merlin other than Merlin's his friend. And again, he doesn't, unless it's literally to complete Excalibur. I, I'm just, I'm just a little fuzzy on that. Well, but. it's because, uh, when, when King Arthur went to go, uh, see the, uh, the sock puppet show when he was a young child in the theaters in the year, uh, 1589 then Merlin appeared next to him and said gave him some very vague instructions about what he should do in his in his, when he was an adult and now he has to follow them there we go that's that's the way Merlin communicates it's only when you're a child in extremely vague terms while you're watching something else completely different and your attention's divided he works in mysterious ways ah, you can't you can't blame him if it, if, it, if the uh if the end it justifies the means then I guess we can't really complain let's get to the ball Kurt and a festive ball 
it is. Uh, we have we have some nice uh, talk here between Grumpy and Bell. I would say Grumpy in general is like a very very friendly character this episode. Well, I mean, he kind of outgrew the Grumpy thing and was it is more commonly referred to as Leroy rather than Grumpy. He, he shed his Grumpy uh, uh, demeanor, even though he's probably the grumpiest of the worst. Um, I, I think we, we we get to see more of an actual true grumpy dude. Yeah, I just think like he's like he's super supportive this episode between this scene where he comes up to Belle and he's like, you know, look on the bright side of the rose. And I mean, she is very understandably looking at the rose the way we would look at the rose in terms of she's in another world and she is literally watching her husband die, but he's trying to put a pride spin on it. We'll see him later on when they face off against the Fury, and she's like, well, I think you can take you can take down this dark swan now so like this guy is everyone's cheerleader at this point that that if aj Mass could give archetypes to the once upon a time cast leroy is definitely the cheerleader the hourglass is half full not as not half empty yes very true all right kurt let's uh let's talk about some teenage romance here <laughs> let's talk this is, this is the cloud on the horizon <laughs> I did not expect, and I mean, I guess, you know, Jared Gilmore is definitely of that age, but I just did not expect the writers to say, like, okay, now Henry's going to deal with some romance because we have found someone in his life and her name is Violet. Yeah, Lily, Violet. If she's anything like the la- uh, about, like, Lily, we're not going to see much of her after this episode. <laughs> that's, but, uh, that's, but I have a feeling we're, we're going to see more Violet than Lily in the, uh, probably in the at least the first several episodes of the season i wouldn't be surprised if knowing these writers violet turns out to be violet from the incredibles and we have that that crossover next story arc oh boy i'm not upset that this is being explored i'm just thinking it's i'm just hoping that not that it, it gets the due amount of tension that it probably deserves in the next several episodes, unless Violet turns to, turns out to be a big evil person who is directing Percival. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. So, Kurt, overall, what what did you think of Henry and Violet's meet cute? Was it wasn't a meet meet cute, or was it like a meet lukewarm? Um. I was just upset that we had to live through it twice. That's true. They, they, had, they had to meet all over again. It's like 50 first dates. <laughs> I, w- I was fine with it once. Um, what, one, one note, given the whole memory loss thing, is there are several points in this episode between the Camelot storyline and the Storybrooke storyline where I was like, why are people... Oh, yeah, they forgot that they already know each other. Or they forgot that they had some sort of interaction. Because... You know, everything we're experiencing in Camelot is something that nobody in the story storyline knows. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I keep forgetting that. Um, and, they're, and they're trying the best for me, to be completely honest. Um, it, 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 was, it was okay. Um, better to serve that because there's no place you're going to be able to charge. Yeah, that's true. Well, I, I kind of doubt Henry's logic in taking out the iPod Nano in the first place, because that's isn't that like rule number one of time slash realm traveling that you don't want to pull out any technology uh, for the to, to spook anyone? Because, I mean, this person is from the medieval ages. They're going to freak out at the idea of electricity, let alone an entirely portable music device. That's all valid if you're in the Trek universe, then you're violating the prime directive by, you know, it, it bringing in technology big. Civilization has not experienced. I believe in the one upon a time universe. It's pretty valid. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it was just, it was just a very odd. And I mean, again, this is Henry's first crush. Uh, he has not conquered the situation before. I feel like he could probably could have been a little smoother. Uh, he's not working his way up yet to Grumpy's wingman, but I mean, I guess it seems like he made an impression. And so him and Violet are listening to his iPod Nano, which he apparently got as a gift from Regina, uh, after saving that's what he says he got as a gift for uh saving everyone at the end of season four which again i don't understand in over what period of time that happened since like them since emma you know taking the dagger and them going to to camelot took like what like half an hour so i don't think in any of that time regina could have driven to the best buy and bought an ipod nano for henry yeah, not not sure when exactly that happens. Yeah, but they listen to. Uh, so I looked this up. It's a the song that they listen to is some like eighty synth song uh, by a group called Yazoo, and the song is called "Only You." And we hear it twice this episode. Yeah, I actually uh, am familiar with this song, uh, and th- this I, I know of a different version of it. And I don't know if this was a a remix. I don't I don't believe this. What we heard was the original. I think it was a, a remix of it, but. Um, uh, yeah, we get to hear it a couple times. I'm, and, 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 you know, Violet, when she hears it the next time, she's going to think it's vaguely familiar for some reason. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe Henry is like an amateur, like Skrillex, and he's got like, uh, he's got like mashups set up in his room that he's trying to mix when he's not trying to save everyone. Well, he's sure not going to school, so he's got plenty of time. <laughs> yeah. No, mom, I can't go to school today. I'm working on my mashups. <laughs> okay, son. I actually did like the exchange here where Violet says, you know, are, are you a knight? And Henry goes, no, I'm a writer. I think that was just, that was funny on a few levels. And as much as we may disparage Jerry Gilmore's acting here, he did make me chuckle with that line. Yeah. But then the whole it's lame thing is like, I think he, as a writer, uh, I think he should be cognizant enough uh, to know what language is going to land uh, in, you know, a medieval time sort of thing. His familiarity with, fairy tales and you know and the, yeah. the, the storybook uh I, I think that he would probably be much more cautious about using language and vernacular that would be uh you know recognized by the, the locals versus saying yeah, it's lame it's like why is one of its legs injured i don't understand can you can you not dance <laughs> yeah i would um, uh, because regina can't either uh yeah i would say that like if Henry was reading this story in a book, he would totally say, like, okay, like, I'm denying the plausibility of this story. There's no way that in a fairy tale, a guy would pull out an iPod Nano and say that this was lame. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see him, like, reacting with the, the Nano. Just the, what? what's your language around the peasants? Or I guess not peasants, the locals. Well, we don't know. We actually don't know what sort of class. Maybe, maybe she works for the castle. Maybe her mom is an acquaintance. Who knows? It's... That's true, and that's why I'm suspicious that maybe she's the big baddie of this season and Percival was following her doing, because we don't know a lot about where Violet comes from. Yeah, but speaking of Percival, let's get to his big act here, the last moments of his life. He does that uh, deliciously wicked thing that we, we've seen in every uh, Jane Eyre adaptation where he cuts in on a dance and he sort of whispers his secret to Regina about how he knows who, he is, how, who she is. And we get, like, a nice little... Uh, reveal here where he tells a story where his village got burned down when he was a kid and that he saw her as the evil queen which reminded me a lot of like uh greg's story about how both of these guys kind of harbor resentment towards regina and now they're getting revenge on her now um of course that's very it's very short-lived okay greg uh yeah from from 
this show. <laughs> yes, not uh, yeah, not 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 Greg Buist. <laughs> um, so so it turns out, you know, he knows her secret. He hasn't told anyone else. Um, but he pulls out a sword. He intends to assassinate her, but uh, Robin pulls a bodyguard stunt and tackles him. Uh, David very quickly kills him, uh, which I, it's been a while since, uh, since our heroes have outright killed anybody, but David has no problem doing it there. Yeah, it seems a little rash, like when you can, uh, you know, knock him out on the head with your sword. I mean, obviously, I think, you know, don't try that at home, knocking somebody out with, like, you know, cold cocking them and, and knocking them out doesn't just doesn't really work all that well in the real world. Uh, but in the concept of once upon a time, uh, you think he would have like maybe tried to incapacitate, incapacitate him. Also, um, I'm, su- I, I'm surprised that Percival's move wasn't to try to confront the, who he knows as the evil queen directly, but rather I'm surprised he didn't try to maybe, you know, tell King Arthur. That this was going yeah, on. it does, and maybe he, maybe there's some sort of seeds of distrust sown between them, or he thinks that Arthur's trying to like is too courteous, extending a hand to them, but he doesn't even know them. And Percival is again going rogue and saying like, "Well, I don't trust them, so I'm going to take them out." But yeah, there's definitely a lack of communication here with the Camelotians. <laughs> yes. So uh, you know, he Robin luckily tackles him, and David is again very quick to be stab happy and kill Percival. But turns out that Robin has been mortally wounded in the fight. I'm not sure. I, I might have to rewatch the scene. I'm not sure how that could have happened unless he was, like, shanked from a close proximity. Because I do not know how that sword could have gotten, like, out and in him and back out in that short amount of time. Yeah, it's, um... The, the physics of swordplay are beyond me. But I'm <laughs> just... I just had to say, okay, so coming out of this, what's our, what's our, our status? We've got uh, injured hood and... Uh, I'm guessing dead Percival. Okay, check. Got it. Yeah, and I mean, he got stabbed. It looked like he got stabbed like pretty close to the kidneys, which I'm pretty sure is like almost a death sentence. Like if you get stabbed in the kidneys, like you're pretty much guaranteed to die very quickly. Oh, you've got two. <laughs> That's true. You might not be able to, uh, to to pee as well as you once did, but I guess you could still survive if you were able to stop the bleeding with your powerful yeah. magic. Yeah. Um. I thought it was interesting because, you know, next we see that, you know, Robin's laid out on a table in the kitchen. Um, you know, pro tip, maybe don't do it where the food's prepared next time. It's but, the medieval ages, Kurt. They were, they, were, they were probably very close to using leeches on him if the magic didn't work. That, that's true. But I, thought, I thought it was interesting that Regina tried to heal him, but check me and my logic and my understanding on this. Because the sword that had – Percival had enchanted the sword – to kill her, and because that enchanted sword had stabbed Robin, her magic wouldn't be able to heal that sword's wound. Yeah, and I guess it makes sense logically. Like, had Percival okay. gone through with his correct duty and stabbed Regina, she wouldn't have been able to heal herself, and that's the goal that he wanted. Okay. That being said, I'm, I have no idea how he was able to do this whatsoever, whether he, like, got a piece of her hair or something to get the DNA on it, but she wasn't able to do it because I think... It was it was meant for her, and Percival wanted to make sure that she couldn't heal herself. Again, pointing to the likelihood between the magic sword, this magic amulet, it's very much pointing to the likelihood that Percival is not acting alone in this, and there's somebody more well versed in magic that is adding it. It's a, it's a Camelot spiracy. Yes. 
<laughs> not gonna be the hashtag too hard to spell <laughs> <laughs> no let's give let's everyone give everyone a challenge this week uh so as robin's laid out on the slightly unsanitary surface uh as regina's not able to look to her magic everyone says all right emma we're gonna have to bite the bullet and you're gonna have to do this uh but before emma can do anything and, uh, you know, my hopes had gone out the window that at this point in the flashback, we were like three quarters of the way through the episode. And I was so happy because I was so my hopes were so set on not seeing Dark Clippy again this episode. But there he is. He pops up right in the chair in the middle of the kitchen. Yeah, and I do think it's also fair to point out that not everybody's trying to tell Emma to do this. It was Regina. Everyone was actually trying to tell Emma, no, don't do it. We don't want you using dark magic. And Regina was saying, but you're the only one that can heal him. And I thought it actually put Regina in a really interesting and awkward spot to be kind of going against what the entire group had been saying to Emma in terms of we can't have you using magic because that will bring you closer to the dark side. But now that's the only thing that could possibly save her man. Um, it, it's it's kind of lucky that, you know, as much as as much as Rumpelstiltskin is saying that, you know, this is going to um, you know, do it, do it. This will. This is what you have to give into the dark side. It sounds like Emma's insisting that this will be different because she's the savior. Yeah, uh, and th- uh, now let's talk about this whole price thing as well. Because I mean, oh, yeah. one of the one of the main mantras, like the outwit, outplay, outlast of Once Upon a Time, is magic has its price. Um, yeah, and, and so they really. I mean, the title of the episode is the price, but they really hammer it home specifically with this spell and it will have huge repercussions in Storybrooke. What did you think about this like very specific example of the price? Um, well, it's, 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 it's interesting. Like we, we only at this point, you know, Emma really only has, you know, dark clippies word that this is actually, you know, how things are going to go. But, you know, we always knew that, you know, golden ripple stiltskin never lie um we know this just isn't her inner voice because this inner voice is able to tell her things the will the wisp but i think she just doesn't know so we know that this is an actual intelligent voice speaking to her um so i don't know it, it, it's interesting the fact that and the fact that regina it has to be regina's life because she's the one that actually asked for the magic um that seems like, I don't know if there's loopholes that can be in, pl- be in play there, but yeah, when I said earlier that Emma insisted that this would be different because she's the savior was, was really in reference to, well, it, it, it may not have to be Regina because I'm not, I'm, I'm a little bit different. Um, this is also, yeah, when Emma says that she's the savior, it could very well be different this time. Gold doesn't deny it. Uh, in the dark doesn't deny the voice. So that makes so I'm wondering if, again, is there something to this idea that she can still be the savior and be the dark one at the same time? Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, and I, yeah, he, we do sort of, as you said, allude to it, but don't exactly confront the fact that maybe things can be different. Um, and you know, we have the loose magical rules here of like, even though Emma's casting the spell, even that it's Regina's intention, so she's going to be the one that has to pay the price, which is sort of like, I find that a loophole in the whole magical contract, but I guess it's the spurring action for what happens in Storybrooke. So I guess we yep. got to go with it. And, and, you know, getting, a, we, I think we, it's hard to talk about this without talking about the, uh, the appearance of the fury in the storybook line, because they're, 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 you know, part and parcel to, to, to each other. Um, but, you know, it sounds like gold slash dark clippy 
is saying that, yes, you can bring uh, Robin Hood back from the dead, but because Regina asked for it, her, her life will be forfeit or that her life will have to be taken. Yet it's not Regina who is taken uh, back in Storybrooke. Um, and so I don't know if that if what we're supposed to believe is that the Fury would show up and take your life or because Regina did not pay for healing Hood with her own life, that the Fury came to reclaim the you know, Hood was supposed to be dead. And so Fury is going to take him back to uh, back to the underworld. Yeah, it's so a, I think I'm, yeah. I'm still unsure which which of those is we're supposed to think. Yeah, it's, it's a magical repo, man. Basically, I'm 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 good with that theory that it's like, well, you use our magic to pay for this life, but you didn't actually pay us back. So now we have to go take it. Yeah, but how do you pay that back, though? I mean, if Regina is supposed to pay the price herself. And so Emma, she, Regina requests it. Emma performs the deed. Regina now owes her life. Is there something that's supposed to happen in Camelot now that we later see that where Regina does not give up her life? Do we see her reneging on that deal in some way in the upcoming episodes? Where's her opportunity to actually make that payment? So the repo man, I'm sure maybe it'll play out in the next couple of episodes where, where Regina goes go back on paying the price and end up not doing it. Yeah, I will say, uh, going back to this whole scene in the kitchen, I mean, even two episodes in, I can't get enough of these scenes where Emma is talking to Dark Clippy and everyone just sort of stares at her like, who are you talking to? I'm, I'm never going to get old of that trope. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Emma uh, decides, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to use my magic. Robin is revived without anyone else besides Emma knowing about the true price that Regina has to pay. Uh, but Emma very quickly leaves the room. And here is here's something interesting, Kurt. Dark Clippy appears again and says, you know, you left the room because you were liking the power and it cuts to her hand. And I couldn't tell if her hand was like sort of shooting off magic or whether it was turning scaly like the dark ones. Now, obviously dark Swan is not scaly like Ripple Stillskin is, but I'm wondering what that deal was. Yeah. I, I had assumed that it meant, um, scaly, uh, but keep in mind that Rumpelstiltskin Stiltskin as Mr. Gold in modern day isn't scaly. So you know, maybe dark Swan by the very virtue of being in our world isn't scaly. Um, you know, she, she's not going to be all crocodile in Storybrook, just like Mister Mr. Gold is a crocodile in Storybrook. But you know, if she if she were to return to uh, the Enchanted Forest, or if she were to complete the full transformation in the Enchanted Forest, uh, maybe she's going scaly. But that was my take on it: was that she was starting to go crocodile. Mm-hmm. Maybe she'll be like um, the thing in the Fantastic Four, and wear like a big trench coat once she starts becoming scaly to try to hide herself. If she says it's clobbering time, I might just have to quit the show. Oh, uh, come on. It's a perfect... Oh, wait, no. The, well, I guess, no, Fantastic Four is Marvel, right? Or is it DC? Uh, Fantastic Four is Marvel. Okay, perfect. Disney bought Marvel. I see a tie-in. No. Next, next, next half story is going to be Violet from the Incredibles and all, and Emma becomes the thing. It's going to be all Marvel all the time. Oh, dear. Uh, so we uh, let's get back to Camelot. Uh, yes. So after Percival's actions, Arthur... Sort of does a little bit of cleanup here. He apologizes, and Regina finally admits that she was the evil queen. And Arthur very quickly lets bygones be bygones, sweeps everything under the rug, and says he believes, uh, much like the Survivor producers, in second chances. Uh, yeah. I say, Camelot may be a place of second chances, unless you're Sir Kay and trying to 
take Excalibur out of a stone. <laughs> yeah. We, I believe in second chances unless you're dead. <laughs> yes. Um, so, and you know, he's still under the impression that she is the savior because he believes that she saved Robin Hood. And once again, Regina does not tell the truth about that. Well, she does. Does, does she lie or does she just not deny what was said? Well, that's, that's always, that's like a, a matter for the courts, right? Whether lying yeah. is outright, is de- is denying the truth or just making something up entirely. Yeah, it, yeah I mean, it's, all, it, it's something that she had to, she had to keep quiet at that point. Yeah. Um, so, but it turns out, as we talked about before, that all, all is not cozy with Arthur. He's sort of brooding at Percival's shield over at the round table, which I'm assuming is shrinking more and more with all the red shirt knights that he's losing at this rate. And we have a nice conversation here between him and Guinevere, where it turns out that uh, they're both a lot more wary of the strangers than we initially expected. Uh, but Arthur is very set on utilizing them to make Excalibur whole once again. Yeah, and I guess... and. Yeah, I think this is where it's like, I think this is more a um, a short-term plan of convenience that he kind of stumbled upon when they revealed that they were trying to destroy the Dark One. I can't remember if they know that, uh, that they have the dagger um, or if they're just, he's just assuming that uh, if they're going to destroy the Dark One, they'll eventually stumble upon the dagger. I guess the, the other question I have is, uh, do we know how Arthur knows that the Dark One Dagger is what completes Excalibur? Do we know where those two things come together? With all those things you just asked, I'm just going to put a pin on <laughs> it and say that Merlin told him. <laughs> okay, there we go. I, I can totally imagine that. that Merlin says, like, you must, again, when he encountered eight-year-old yeah. Arthur watching a puppet show, said, like, you must make Excalibur whole one day. Find the dagger. Find the dagger. Like, I could totally imagine him giving that <laughs> vague advice. Uh, and specifically the dagger of the Dark One. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mentioned yeah. there'd be a Dark One, and there is a dagger that has the Dark One's name on it, uh, and you must use that. It actually is very similarly designed as the sword you will wield, uh, so it's very easy to find. Yeah. Um, but but I, like you said earlier, this is kind of a nice... Um, meeting of convenience then that's like well uh wasn't necessarily planning on this but you know they're trying to find they want to free merlin i want to free merlin uh doing so will help them defeat the dark one and you know and that could bring me closer to 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 completing excalibur so i think he was going to help them anyway this is a nice bonus for him yeah so let's jump ahead several years and the whole realm. Let's go talk about the storybook stuff from the beginning of the episode. Uh, we talked about the first scene a little bit already. The dwarves trying to figure out what's going on, uh, getting across town, and they they volunteer Dopey in the old nose goes mentality. They send him over, and before we know it, he gets turned into a tree. So at the moment, that is two dwarves down, and I kind of hope that Sneezy stayed turned to stone, because I kind of want to see a different way a dwarf would get killed off <laughs> slash turned into something every episode. B. That was my Giles impression. Uh, if, yeah. we can see, if we can see a whodunit uh, seven dwarves crossover, is the, unfortunately, the next victim is... <laughs> did, did, did Dopey not do a good enough job of explaining what happened to Sneezy so he got scared instead of spared? Yep, Yeah, I would say, not, I would say not, not since they, I believe there was a scene in like the second season, I think, where they tried to cross the town line 
again, and I'm pretty sure we saw all seven dwarves then, but I think that was like the last time we really saw that. Yeah, and this is especially the not last week where, where Leroy slash Grumpy basically said, uh, we're sidelined all of season four. Um, they're doing a good job, I think, of reintegrating the dwarves uh, into society slash the show this season. Absolutely. So we get a really fun pairing, I feel like, this episode in Hook and Bell because their situations aren't necessarily comparable, but they're very, very relatable. Uh, and I do love that, you know, Bell has gone to Hook to kind of be a shoulder to cry on almost and a figure of advice to say, like, OK, this is how you deal with the person you love being the dark one. Yeah, until the, you know, this is this is a parallel that I probably should have uh, thought of at the end of last season slash in episode one. But until they pretty much spelled it out for me this episode, uh, I, I didn't really pick up on the very tight parallel between Bell and Hook, each being in love with somebody who is slash was the dark one. And I thought that was actually really clever. Yeah. I, there was one second where I'm like, oh boy, I hope they don't start something now. Uh, just, just because <laughs> n- now since they 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 threw Will Scarlet in there for like five episodes, now I'm not so trusting of the producers to not do that. And they, and they do resurrect the idea again of uh, almost the the all-encompassing power of true love's kiss. Um, and I, I really kind of liked the touch where, you know, Hook's questioning, well, how come true love's kiss ne- never cured the dark one, never cured the gold of being the dark one? And, you know, Bell's point, and any of those things are going to get revisited throughout season five, um, Bell's point that, you know, a curse is a curse anymore, the afflicted embraces it and fully wants it. Um, yeah, that's kind of where where gold was in terms of the power that it had now owned. And as we find out here in this episode, uh, it seems like, you know, at least you know, Mark Swan has reached that level of embracing it's not really a curse for her anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's uh it's it's a really and I'm glad they I'm I am glad they like spelled that out too because again it's a very relatable situation and I think it's gonna be something that really comes to fruition later when you know, Hook really wants Emma to like basically just come come over, you know, be a good person. And, and it shows that like it's not that she can't as much as now she's sort of going for power and really giving into those tendencies over the ones that make her love Hook. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I, I like well, that this puts Belle in. Uh, especially because she she hasn't she have a huge role in episode one, so I kind of like about character. So I'm, I'm glad to see that she's you know for for her to turn to. Kurt, is this the? I'm trying to remember. Does the dark one technology utilize the Beetlejuice method? Have we have we heard this before? Because Henry basically says Emma Swan three times, and that's how she appears and this doesn't happen for the rest of the episode i'm trying to remember has it happened before and i was waiting for everybody in granny's diner to start suddenly singing dale um <laughs> i i was i was thinking more like bloody mary and like you're saying it three times in front of a mirror um I, yeah i was trying i was trying to remember where we learned that if you say that well i remember that you know people were always cautious of saying rumpelstiltskin's name yeah. because who could hear you and he could come for you. I don't know where the saying it three times necessarily came into play. Um, but, you know, she, you know, without the dagger, you can't really just make her come. Um, so it's she hears her son calling for her and she arrives. 
Yeah, I, I guess it's more of like a, a convenient thing than anything because yeah, nobody has the dagger, so you can't control her. So you're pretty much just she's pretty much just wandering around the town, as we'll see, and just happens to run into people and have conversations with them. Yeah, um, and we do learn from this interaction. You know, this and this is kind of, I think, very telling. You'd think that if there was anybody who could get uh, her to rethink her ways, that it would be Henry. Uh, yeah. as her son and she points out to him that it, you know a little bit of a clue uh that he didn't that he wasn't the one that um failed that failed her everybody else did um i the whole i hope that they i hope i do hope that they dropped the you know the whole you know Dark Swan, you have to tell us why you took away our memories. Well, I'm not going to tell you why, but you have to. I, I hope they kind of at least they stop doing that because yeah. that that is getting it. That started to get a little old for me in this episode. We we get it. Uh, Emma took away your memories, uh, and she's not going to tell you what happened. So just get used to it. Yeah, I, I think they will after uh, a couple of episodes. I think they just need to immediately address yeah. the concern right there. I mean, something tells me. I have a feeling that the way Emma was delivering that line, that the way she made the curse, she made it so that she was forbidden to tell them. Um, just to just to make things easier, and I, I did think it was that because you know Regina comes in at this point, um, and basically it, it it kind of points out the I don't know if it's like the catch twenty two or the the double standard of this of this this plot point. You know, Emma says uh, you don't want your son Henry to know what you did. It's like, well, if you so Emma Emma says that Regina doesn't want Henry to know the truth. But then, you know, if the truth is so important, why did you erase our memory so none of us know what the truth is? It is kind of a strange catch-22 that the writers point out to us through this exchange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's very true. And I'm, I'm sure it's something that they're going to really conquer over the next few weeks. Again, this is episode two, and a lot of stuff has happened, granted, over these two hours. But they have nine more episodes to really build this out. But as you said, Regina does talk to Emma. And this is where Regina says, like, okay, well, um, she really takes this role of savior upon her. But Emma is very vocally doubtful. And she alludes to something coming to Storybrooke that only a savior can solve. Right. And she also, even before that, says that she built this curse so that only, I believe she says she built a curse that could only be lifted by the one thing you don't have, a savior. So it's kind of makes it seem like the savior is doubly important. A, the curse could, the, the only fail safe here, there is none. It can only be lifted by the savior. And guess what? You ain't no savior. B, something's coming to town that can only be stopped by the savior. Guess what? You don't have a savior. Yeah. So, um, We'll, we'll, we'll get to the, you know, the, the, the fury business in a bit. <laughs> yeah, but the, it turns out the thing that is coming to Storybook that the Savior can't solve is not a gaggle of new arrivals, which are, I don't know what proportion of the Camelotians, I don't know if we're pulling a leftovers here, and it's like 2% of the Camelot population got taken, but at least Arthur and his wife and several key characters did. And, well, it, it seems like that percentage rises dramatically as the episode proceeds, because at first we see it's Arthur and maybe a couple nights. Um, and I was confused at, again, I was confused at this point about why are they kind of fighting, although it's kind of a one-sided fight. Um, and it's really a memory loss. But then again, they remember everything up to the point of walking into Camelot, it seems. So you'd think that you would see these this guard before, and he wouldn't have immediately been on guard and wondering what's going on. Um, but 
at the same time, I was surprised that I didn't think earlier that, oh, yeah, uh, if everybody gets sucked back to Storybrooke, there's a chance that some of the Camelotians uh, may have that may have happened to them, too. Um, but yeah, apparently it did. Apparently we, we, we get we get Arthur and team, and we get we see Guinevere, and then we see like apparently a whole slew of the townsfolk. <laughs> yeah, those poor townsfolk. They probably were not. They weren't involved in any sort of business that was going on, and now they're sucked into this new, slightly modern world that they have no idea what's going on in. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they, they are pretty much refugees, right? They have tents yeah. set up in the woods, which I mean, they, I mean, I don't know, knowing medieval living and that the tent might actually be a step up from the way some of those people were living. Uh, but I mean, the, yeah, if, uh, Storybrooke FEMA is totally on the case right now. Yeah, and they, it seems that, more like that it's actually they're pretty good at dealing with that sort of emergency. It's so a one yeah. sort of emergency they can deal with right on the spot. Yeah, it turns out no, they're not they're not facing their typical CGI beast yet. This is actually a problem that they can actually grasp right now. Um, and so as they're as they're treating these refugees, um, Regina is still feeling very insecure about what Emma told her about how she can't be the savior. Um, but uh, as you know, Robin Hood is trying to assure her. He starts collecting wood, and then we see. I don't know how to describe this, Kurt, for someone who did see this. Uh, it's like a it's like the shadow from Peter Pan, but is flying with wings made out of tree branches. Yeah, I I had in my notes initially evil tree fairy. Yeah, it looked like it. It looked like a like a tree spirit. Yeah. Um, and it, it wasn't until maybe we got a, a closer look at it that I actually wondered if it was it looked a little Emma-ish in terms of maybe it was just like pale white female form is really as far as I, I got with that. Um, but yeah, it, cause the, the, the limbs kind of ended in branch like tendrils. Um, but I, I, I think that the, the tree link comparison was purely a coincidence because you know, there are tree spirits, there are dryads and, and, and things like that. But, you know, this was more out of like classical Greek mythology in terms of it being one of the furies as we later find out. Yeah, I, I there also was a part of me that thought for one second we had, since we had seen Merlin being turned into a tree that this is like some sort of form of Merlin, sort of like in the Hobbit movies when the necromancer who eventually becomes Sauron is like this just this general blackness. Um, before actually becoming a, a corporeal being in the Lord of the Rings, I feel like I was like, "Oh, is this like the general spirit of Merlin flying about now?" Or maybe it was evil Dopey. Yeah, <laughs> Dopey man, he has changed for the worse now that he's a tree. Yeah, yeah, not, <laughs> or, not a good look. Maybe he's just misunderstood and was trying to like tell them hi. Um, but we have some real estate commandeering to talk about as Emma has sort of taken some random house in Storybrooke to be her own. And she's trying to, she, she invites hook over for a, a drink and all he wants to do is just convince her to, uh, to try to join the light side again. And here we notice, uh, Chekhov's locked door, I guess. <laughs> it completely was. It was like, that is not at all conspicuous. <laughs> yeah, even if, if, I mean, well, also, if I don't know if this... Do you think this house exists uh, belonged to someone else? Because if it did, I wonder what that person was keeping in the basement if they had that much of a locked door. Um, later we find out what is in the basement. So I have to imagine that this is some maybe magically conjured residence or, or, or something or something that had always been like that. 
well, you know, like you would see in a in some sort of you know crime investigation show. Well, it turns out this person actually had a deed to a property on the edge of town. Let's go investigate. Maybe there's always been like this this dark one property. At first, I wondered if it was the uh, the 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 sorcerer's mansion, uh, uh, but you know, quickly kind of from the different views we got of it, it very much, you know, wasn't, it was a little bit more residential than that, but you know, that, that's a good point. Like had this house always existed. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of talk more about later what is in the basement. But yeah, if you, if you show a, a heavily, strangely locked door in act one, then said locked door uh, must either be attempted to be opened or actually opened by act two. Yeah, and what Emma didn't know was that uh, actually the characters from the film slash novel apt pupil uh, were taken from a realm and brought to this house. And that's what, that's why the basement is so locked up and i'm sure the two of you that understood the apt pupil <laughs> reference are very i don't i wouldn't say happy because that is a very disturbing piece of work um but yeah i was actually pretty surprised not to skip too far to the end that we actually got the door unlocked this episode i totally thought it was going to be something that would get brought up like three or four episodes from now what's funny is you know in, the, in this episode good to her house contiguous locked over um and you know, you know, things like that. You think this is going to play out is that Hook uh, and Charming uh, tried a couple different ways to sneak into the locked door, but it seems from what we learned that Dark Swan didn't know what was beyond the locked door until uh, you know Dark Clippy uh, opened to help her get through. <laughs> Yeah, I mean he's he's a really a uh, a source there. <laughs> he's like the like the real estate agent who never really showed her that part of the house, but then finally decides to. Oh, we have a, a very nicely uh, two bedroom. Uh, there's a it's a really weird cave in the basement with a sword in it, uh, but really nice lacquerware furniture. We really enjoy it. Yeah, it's we'll, we'll talk about what's in the basement when we get to that. <laughs> yeah, let's let's go back outside here. Regina has her first face off here with this odd little spirit uh and she tries to throw her signature fireballs around though she is quickly knocked around and the other heroes want to take her to the hospital which means to <laughs> regina that they don't believe they don't trust in her that they were strangely insistent that she get to the <laughs> hospital for a checkup for simply having been thrown across the lawn i mean it 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 the, the, it yeah they just seemed strangely insistent for that um i the, you're rewinding a bit just though though to back to, to emma's house i think one thing to, to to mention there is that we do finally see you know hook does kiss her and this is i think you know hook's revelation that you know that she is fully embraced being dark swan because the uh that she that dark swan emma being the afflicted likes the power and so i think that's kind of also an important turning point for hook in terms of you know he's not going to stick around he's walking away from the nookie opportunity uh <laughs> that you know he, that's just not who he is uh, as much as you know emma he's tempting emma to come to the light side she's just as much now tempting him to come to the dark side yeah. and he kind of books it out of there but yeah going back to the the, the, the forest i you know you know the fury throws regina around for a bit um but not enough to warrant. I mean, she's faced a lot worse, and not and people haven't insisted that she get seek medical attention. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I agree. It definitely was a. Uh, it definitely was a little far fetched. But going back to your point about Hook, I mean, it's fair to say that I guess Hook this episode did it all for the Nookie. Yeah, the Nookie, but he couldn't take that cookie and stick it 
in his mouth. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll use that. I'll try use the cleaner term there. Uh, uh, but so, yeah, so Regina takes this this whole go to the hospital thing as a sign that he needs that she they don't believe in her. So she goes to a comatose gold to just kind of <laughs> vent to him, uh, which I mean, that's never a great way to use your comatose uh patience but i guess you know if you need the if you need to use the resource it's there <laughs> yeah i haven't seen the studies that show whether or not you know cursing and uh and and being angry at comatose patients helps them potentially come out of their comas but i'm guessing that the the results aren't that positive <laughs> Yeah, but it turns out that it's a good thing she's there because Belle are, uh, are always helpful inside our Velma Kelly, if you will. Oh, not Velma Kelly. I'm thinking of Chicago. Velma from Scooby-Doo. Uh, she's there with the uh, the answer to the question, what the heck is that thing? It is a fury, which we've talked about considerably throughout this podcast, which is a deity from Greek myths, which uh, from what I looked up is a specifically a deity of vengeance. Uh, there have been several tales written by Aeschylus and Euripides about things that people in, in uh, Greek stories have done and the Furies were watching and specifically enacted revenge for the things that they did. Yeah. And was, so, and, you know, Bell kind of spells out that, it, that the Fury came to collect on the, it specifically says though, came to collect on the price of a spell, probably one that was cast in Camelot and it's usually someone's life. So if the Furies, you know, maybe the details got mixed up, but You'd think that if the Fury was here to collect on the price of Emma's spell from Camelot, from what Dark Clippy said in Camelot, you'd think that the Fury would have come for Regina, not Robin. Yeah, and you also would have thought that, like, why would the Fury come, like, right now? Was it, like, waiting for them to get to Storybrooke? Why didn't it attack her when she was in Camelot? Or did it, and they just don't remember, and now it's That's coming true. back? Or maybe, 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 and maybe the Fury forgot, too. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we'll see more of that, that price to pay uh, in the in the Camelot part of things. But it wasn't until later in the episode that I actually put two and two together again and realized, Oh, so this is probably what Emma meant is coming, is coming to town. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't Santa Claus. Not, not, Santa uh, yeah. Claus. not, the, not this one, at least wait until we get enough to, till we get closer to December and maybe that'll yeah. be the case. Um, and, and it was, yeah, it wasn't until later in the episode that I realized that the fury may be what, uh, dark Swan was referring to when kind of warning, uh, warning Regina, but that's what it seems like. Uh, um, and yeah, so Robin is probably being dragged to the underworld, but uh, A, somebody, it sounds like somebody has to give their life in his place, and B, they have a little bit of time because it has to happen when the moon is in this particular place. Yeah, uh, which I always, I wonder, you know, this might be a little inhumane, but I wonder what what would have happened if to take a life, Regina went up to the dopey tree and just chopped it down. Like, would that be taking a life technically? Um. Yeah. I, I, well, I think I think that it needs to take some life. Like, it literally drag them off. Um, so I don't know if it's Regina's place to uh, to get tree to uh to the fury but yeah she couldn't even get to the she turned to the yeah yeah maybe 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 um but we have our second big emma regina confrontation this episode as she goes to visit her at her house i don't know how she figured out where that house was but maybe she just she looked at the listings and saw it was on the market um but she says you know uh, i'm not the savior i admit it but i'm also not going to sacrifice a uh 
sacrifice something to save Robin. And Emma makes that really interesting comment that I alluded to before where she says, you know, there are no, no good or bad versions of ourselves. We just are who we are, uh, which, again, is a really fun way to kind of color this whole Dark One concept that it's not necessarily the Dark One as much as it is like exploring the darker tendencies of one's character, but yeah. she's, she's very uh, flippant about it and saying like, well, I wasn't the one that brought the fury here. So get out of my house. Yeah. There's a couple of things. I mean, she does say that she won't sacrifice someone else to rescue Robin. So maybe, you know, maybe she could sacrifice Dopey to be completely honest. Maybe she can actually throw somebody else to the fury. Um, the, but it's nice that she recognizes that, that wouldn't be the savior like slash heroic thing to do. And you also get the sense that she's, I think what, what we're looking for from Regina is for her to make to take good actions naturally and not to see some sort of thought process where she rationalizes, oh, if I choose choice A over B, that's more savior-like, so I'll do that. We want it to be a little bit more natural. And her reaction to refusing to give up somebody else's life for Robin does feel natural, like a, a truly a good thing that she's doing. But when Emma explains that she didn't summon the fury that Regina did in Camelot, uh, and did not pay the price. I'm wondering if we're, ta- we're talking about the situation where where Emma healed Robin, because it does seem like I don't know. How do you look at that situation? Uh, if Emma's saying she didn't summon the Fury, does that mean that there was some other thing that we haven't gotten to in Camelot yet that does summon the Fury, yeah. or is she just kind of speaking in technicality? You know, because Regina asked for. Healing of Robin Hood that did some of the fury. Yeah, I'm wondering. I mean, I think the first one would be fun. It would be cool to see, like, over the course of these flashback episodes in Camelot, if something gets done right before the curse gets enacted, that would bring about the fury as soon as they get there. But I'm per- I'm thinking most likely it's closer to the second. That it's just Emma saying, yeah. "I literally by my hand did not bring about the fury. You technically did because it was your intention to use my magic." It would have been great if we had like a, a super cut of flashbacks then where it's like literally Regina saying, Gosh, I just have a really tasty apple right now. I just have fury. I have like six or seven of those. But <laughs> he knows that none of these happened. Yeah, I would, I, I would like a fury to appear every episode from now on as well. <laughs> right, it's just constantly rewarded. It's kind of like a, a Kenny and South Park sort of thing where every episode out of the fury dies or well we're we're two for two right now with a knight dying every episode so maybe sir k actually stood for kenny that's yeah true they, they, I love that they are kind of the rare shirts so far although we've we've run out of knights uh at this point um there's a whole there's a whole table full of them i guess we just haven't seen them yet yeah i, I heard that actually, you know round tables meant to seat 12 knights and that each of the knights had an astrological sign, uh, a different astrological sign. And it was kind of meant to represent the entire Zodiac. Um, so if that is true, and I don't know if King Arthur was one of the knights uh, that counted towards that, there's 12 or 13 knights. Um, we're only down two, so we've got quite a few to go. That will easily get us to the halfway mark of, the, of season five. Uh, does Max Dawson know the Knights of the Roundtable affiliation of all the Survivor winners as well? <laughs> well played, Mike Blue. <laughs> so let's. The, so the moon happens to hit its position very soon after Bell talks about yeah. when the Fury comes about. <laughs> when you say like the the moon's in a particular phase, so we have time. It's still that night. It's like, it's like 10 minutes. <laughs> I, I thought she'd have like two or th- oh, so we have like two or three days before this happens or something like that. It's like, 
No, it's still tonight. Uh, we still have to take care of this right away. So I'm trying to, to figure this out, Kurt. Did, was Robin near like a lake or was it the docks? Because, again, we talk a lot about like the ever-changing topography and geography of Storybrooke, but I don't remember there being a lake there. I'm pretty sure, though, at the, at the park that there was we've seen bridges and streams. I'm pretty sure that we've seen before a small pond uh, at the, the local park. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's been there. Okay, all right. I'll take your word for it. But you know, the the fury brings Robin there, and suddenly we have a boat come. And very true to Greek mythology, I at least from what I can assume that that boat was like alluding to the river Styx, right? That yeah, is, that was the the Charon Charon C H A R O N. Yeah, to, the, the boatman to take the to take across to to quite literally drag him to hell, uh, but not before Regina can try to stop it. Yeah, and I, I liked and. and I, I like the eventual uh, reverse footage of the fog rolling back into the into the, the, yeah, the lake. Like, or beep, 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 beep. <laughs> uh, and then the boat just starts flowing backwards. Um, yeah, and it's just a Team Charming shows up, and uh, this really did to me just seem like a video game battle. Like the Fury hit, you know, hit them with her her power blast. She hit up on the D pad while hitting the triangle button. It did that special power move that she now has to recharge before she can use it again. Um, this is a little bit of a, a kind of a Spartacus moment where, like, I will help. No, I will help. And they all just kind of end up forming a human chain. So now the Fury is at an all you can eat soul buffet and apparently feeding off of all five of them. Um, and ultimately walks away from the situation like I always do whenever I go to a Vegas buffet <laughs> too full regretting that you did it and probably not being active very much thereafter well I gotta say Kurt as much as you may disparage me for the superhero comparisons this episode this scene a lot like the end of Guardians of the Galaxy I was I and I was not the only person that I, I saw on like Entertainment Weekly the the a person recapping that they had the exact same idea. Where spoiler alert, there's a scene where everyone grabs onto each other and sucks in this enormous amount of power that allows them to kind of dilute it and save the and save the the universe. Uh, and it's not as you know, catastrophic uh, circumstances, but it definitely is a very similar detail. Where like through the power of teamwork and friendship, they're able to dilute the Fury's power, which drives it away. Yeah. Um. It, it, you know, it's even slightly reminiscent of, and I, and I don't know, maybe this is an overarching thing, uh, scheme for, for once upon a time as a whole, but the idea that, uh, you know, none of us are as strong as all of us together. And, you know, going back to, I believe it was, you know, season three, where oh, we have to sacrifice our hearts, well, the sacrifice, but I'll give you half of my heart. So that oh, yeah. we can both live. Um, I mean, like, we'll pay the price we need to, but if we all pay the price, uh, then we can get we can get to it much easier. It's kind of the idea that you know, uh, you know, like you and I are going to give up ten percent of the podcast. I'm going to give about fifty percent, and you're going to give about sixty <laughs> percent. <laughs> yeah, I feel like does that does this mean like all, like they're all like going to go to hell now when they die? Like, is that what they just like committed themselves to with the fury sucking them up a little bit? Well, I think since they each like donated twenty percent, it's like they're going to spend like every every like you know Tuesday and half of Wednesday in hell, and the rest of the time they'll be fine. It's like twenty percent of their afterlife will be spent in hell. Oh God, I hope it's not on on Bald Tuesdays. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, the Fury driven away, and it seems like yeah, our big bad is sort of uh, out of the picture. Can we do a quick little like 
uh, power ranking here, Kurt, of like semi-recent CGI creatures in Once Upon a Time. Let's let's do the uh, the ice monster from the Frozen arc. Let's do the Chernabog, the weird like gargoyle-like yeah. creature, and let's do the Fury. And so we get power ranking, not Ding Mary Kill. No, no, Kurt, <laughs> get your head out of the mind out of the gutter. <laughs> Um, I have to say Chernabog, uh, top of the power rankings, uh, uh, ice monster, number two, fury, number three, but, I, but like in terms, it's different. It's like in terms of relative danger, um, like if this happened in the middle of the night, you know, the fury would have been able to like, boom, take, take Robin hood and get away. Like, mm-hmm. and really not much you can do about it. Uh, but they were able to pretty much defeat the, the Fury much easier than, in, than uh, any, either of the other two. I will say that I think I think in terms of like production value, I might have to put the Fury higher because I think it benefit from the fact that it was at night. Whereas like I think one of the problems we had with something like Chernabog was that considering it was in broad daylight, it looked very chintzy but i do agree that like in terms of actual like efficiency i think that uh the fury is probably near the bottom of the list because it had ample opportunities to actually take robin hood away that it just kept teasing us with it it may have had a way for terror to show up on the boat though uh maybe just as like it's kind of a two-step plan like step one take robin hood step two wait Step three on the boat. Maybe should, maybe should the Fury should have waited a little bit longer, like for the uh, uh, you know to, to actually take Robin, so they could just get right on the boat instead of having to sit around the port waiting for the boat to show up. Well, who knows? I mean, the the moon might disappear behind the clouds, and then he has to come back again in like ten minutes. That's, that's true. Well, and, and for the record, Big Fury, Mary Ice Monster, Kill Chernobyl. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, we were uh, that was the question we were all waiting to hear, Kurt. So thank you for clearing that up. Uh, so yeah, I mean, Regina has. Can we say that Regina saved the day, or was it more Regina's intentions helped save the day? Um, I don't think it really matters. I think because at the end of the day, um, you know, at the, at the end of that scene, I think that the key thing is that she has, I think, more confidence because Grumpy comes up to her and says, "You know, because of this, this has shown that if anybody is going to save the town, it's you, Regina." So, I think. That regardless of what the truth is, the fact that I think Grumpy is representing, you know, Grumpy slash Leroy is telling Regina that that's going to give Regina again that that faith to pursue uh, being the savior, whether it's the savior with the big S or savior like literally with the, the smallest, where she's going to be the savior of the town as a, not necessarily the savior in terms of title. Um I think she's reached a point at the end of the Fury battle where there's this renewed uh, belief in her that, you know what, this is something I can do. Yeah. And I, and I really liked it. And I really enjoyed the character development for Regina this episode um, because I uh, one of the ways that I, I feel like if they, they don't utilize Regina is for some story arcs where they just have her like hemming and hawing. Like, for example, the Frozen arc was her just brooding over the fact that she couldn't love Robin Hood for yeah. like literally 11 episodes. And it, got on, and it definitely got on, on both of our nerves. So I'm happy that A, she's been put to action and B, they've really had her deal with these sort of more complicated emotions of like, can I actually do this? Do I have confidence in myself? And as one of the more confident characters in the show in general, uh, it's really fun to see her kind of tackle those. I don't know if they're going to for the rest of the season or whether this is just sort of her centric episode, but it was really fun to watch. 
Yeah, it was. It's 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 good. It's interesting because this is perhaps the most Regina centric we've seen things in a long time, and and perhaps the most removed that Emma has been for a while. Yeah, which will be it'll be interesting to see. You know, maybe they'll be doing that over the next few episodes, concentrating. Maybe we'll see like another Bell episode, and Dark yeah. Swan will be on more of the peripherals. We'll have to see, but. First, Kurt, it's time to celebrate. Uh, we missed out on our season-ending Granny's celebratory montage at the end of last season, so we were able to <laughs> cram it in two episodes later as everyone finally is able to take a breath and they start cheering themselves over in the diner. Yeah, and um, you know, and can we do like a dwarf count at the end of every episode? Because we are officially at six now. Yeah, we're, because, up, we're, we're back up to six. <laughs> yeah, we, we see, like you said, you know, Regina just, oh yeah, yeah, I could have do. I could have done this before you sacrificed Dopey, but uh, here I'll make Sneezy whole again. Which, which do you think would be more annoying to carry around all the time, Sneezy's statue or Belle's rose in the giant glass container? Well, I think the problem is. I mean, I would say that Sneezy's probably less fragile than a rose in a glass jar is. But I feel like. I mean, I wonder if like sneeze like the problem with this whole being turned into a statue thing is like say the dwarves are being careless and they like knock off sneezy's hand does mm-hmm. that mean when he gets turned back to normal he's missing a hand yeah probably i imagine so well uh, i mean i don't know if they were taking great care of him because they the, the beginning of the episode they had him tied to the roof of a truck <laughs> i was really never going out with not gonna stop suddenly and then you know sneezy that you know, flying off the front of it and basically skid across the pavement and lose lose a lot of things he does along with. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely not going to be a wingman after that experience. No, I'll do that. So she, so he gets he gets brought back to life. Uh, a couple of other little uh, notes here from the these uh, these granny scenes. Um, Hook and Belle have a nice little reconnecting moment. Uh, Henry uh-huh. re- Henry reconnects with Violet, and she sort of has a deja vu moment where they listen yeah. to the same yazoo song <laughs> that's that's where i i forgot that they forgot that they had met already and so like when he approaches her i thought it was going to be a oh hey you're here too how have you been I haven't seen you since camelot but no you know remembering they text he does he has forgotten that they've actually met before but they do reconnect here it's over the same song um and again i'm just like unless it, unless the budding romance between Henry and Budding and Violet, see what I did there? Uh, <laughs> unless the budding romance between Violet and Henry actually goes somewhere meaningful to the A-line plot, I'm going to be really bored if they explore this too much as a B-line plot. Yeah, well, it's going to remind me. It reminds me almost a little too much of a show that Kurt and I talked about this summer, Wayward Pines, where there was a relationship yes. between two teenage kids that started off a little awkward, probably much more awkward than what happened with Henry and Violet, but it soon turned into something much more awkward than we could have imagined. Oh, uh, yeah, he is part of the the, uh, the first class. Yeah, the first generation. Of, of first generation of, of Storybrooke. <laughs> yes, I think he actually technically might be, though we don't see any other children. I don't know what happened to Hansel and Gretel and all them, or uh, Jefferson's daughter. But the other uh, part of this uh, granny scene that I'm actually really intrigued in is we we saw like more of the charmings than I think we have in the past, uh, but not too much. They weren't like directly directly involved in the action. But there was this really interesting conversation between the two of them, where uh, David's trying to cheer Mary Margaret up, 
Uh, but Mary Margaret has this really interesting quote where she says, if we win, Emma loses. And I hope that's a really nice breadcrumb that leads to something that's really going to be a nice moral conundrum down the road of like, well, does defeating the Dark One mean possibly losing our daughter at the same time? Yeah, I, I like unless if that's not the outcome, like the question I had in my, in my notes was, is that true? Like, like, is it? It does seem like they know something at this point in time that you have to say, well, she removed the dark one essence from Emma. She's gone. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like they know that. And so I question Mary Margaret's statements. Like, if we win, Emma loses. I was like, or if we win, then Emma wins. If you win, Dark Swan loses. I, I agree with that. It seems if winning for you is returning Emma to her normal state, um, then I think it is win-win. But again, I don't, I don't know. It, I, I don't know what she really meant by that. Maybe we'll find out. Yeah, it'll be. It's interesting because I, I wonder. I also wonder though. I mean, the the apprentice was the only one they knew of that was able to exercise the dark one from a person at any point in time. And now that he's dead, maybe she's kind of given up all hope that they'll be able to get rid of the Dark One without getting rid of Emma. Yeah. So as the celebration continues, we see Emma brooding across the street. Uh, she in, front, in front of an artisanal bakery that for some reason I want to know more about. Like, <laughs> well, you saying. know, it's, it's probably, I bet you there's this whole story arc with the Muffin Man. Uh, he, that is actually, I don't know, he's... Uh, he's actually a, a, a pimp on the side uh, in his in his in his real life, and he has a he has a whole relationship committed back in the story book and the back in the fairy tale days. But uh, yeah, so Emma chooses not to go inside the artisanal bakery, <laughs> but he she decides to go home where Dark Clippy is there to truly show her what is in the basement and to give her a nice pep talk. Yeah, and well, this and this is one thing. So like she's kind of standing outside Granny's, observing seems to be kind of like seems to be kind of wistfully thinking about the camaraderie that's going on inside. And maybe we're to assume she wishes she could be kind of a part of it. And before we get to the, the, you know, Chekhov's basement, um, it got me thinking about the dark one and what the dark one does and how the dark, what the dark one's motives are. And if you think to gold in Storybrooke, he was never like, it's, it, he was always trying to accumulate power, but he was never just outright evil. Like he was manipulative, but not evil. And I think even to some extent in stories in the United Forest, uh, maybe it can be lesser than what I still claim, but not, not there, but uh, it seems like it's kind of the same there. So, like, people just kind of. Yeah, gold seemed pretty easy to live with in story, but it was really the evil queen that was an issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the evil queen actually seemed to be more outwardly malicious in story than gold was. Um, it's like the party is also wondering, well, what, if, what danger does it actually pose other than having out of the dark one? Um, we don't really know what her goal is, although she said enough to one, but if she wants to make everybody, she doesn't really. She wrote, it doesn't really seem to be uh, part of the scope of at least gold as part of what maybe it's part of a plan. Um, just kind of thinking about what is Emma's true, what is Dark Swan's true goal? What does Dark Swan want? Uh, what, what 
injured just ducks long pose. Other than having this all encompassing evil and her loved ones not wanting her to be evil, I, I'm just part of me just started to think. Where 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 is the potential end game for where Dark Swan wants to, wants things to go in Storybrooke? Um, but yeah, but you know, in terms of you know, her family doesn't want her to be evil anymore. We kind of learn a little bit more about that in in the basement of the of the house. That you know, it's family and friends that that potentially do hold Dark Ones back. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting because it sort of reminds me of like you know someone who works a really tough job in saying like well your family and your friends are the only ones holding you back from doing well at your job like it it's always like a fun thing of like basically gold uh, or dark clippy is basically telling her to like you know get your mind in the right place concentrate on being the dark one don't worry about anybody else yeah it's, it's like like part and i guess part of me wondering is wondering now you know does dark swan have a goal in and of herself or you know she's dark swan now but there is this dark one voice in her head. Did Gold always have that voice in his head? And is it that voice that we're suddenly now seeing? Um, is there going to be some manipulation that happens uh, where maybe is it, there aren't necessarily goals that Dark Swan has, but this voice starts manipulating her to do things that some greater Dark One entity, the Hive Mind, wants her to do. I don't know. I'm just going down a rabbit hole. No, no Alice in Wonderland, pun intended. Yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe that maybe when Rumpelstiltskin was starting off with his dark one, he had Zoso's head and voice in his head the entire time. Though I, yeah. think, <laughs> I, I do think that Rumpelstiltskin was probably much easier to buy into the whole dark one thing, considering where he came from, and he's probably much less eager to resist the fate of it. But uh, Dark Clippy guides her down to what's in the basement, which is an underground cave that houses Excalibur, and it turns out that now Emma's new goal is to pull the sword herself or get, or I'll say to get the stone out of the sword out of the stone itself, uh, maybe not by her hands so that she can personally unite the weapon and make it all powerful. Yeah. We kind of forgot to touch on this when, uh, when we're talking about the, uh, the villager, you know, storybook FEMA and the tent city earlier, uh, we, that, you know, Arthur kind of mentions, I think as you know, prompted by Guinevere, um, that, you know, when they all got teleported to Storybrooke, Excalibur somehow is missing. It did not make the jump itself. Um, we now do see, oh, so this is where Excalibur is. It did make the jump, but somehow it ended up back in a stone again. And, you know, true to form, and I think this is actually good, uh, Emma is not able to pull the sword from the stone. She does not get vaporized. No. Um, but uh, she is unable to remove the sword from the stone. And so... Uh, we have to figure out how is she going to, is she going to lure, is her goal now to lure Arthur into the basement to pull the sword from the stone? We shall see. Well, it's interesting because when she grabbed the sword, um, the hilt of it glue red. And it made me wonder back to what was going on with Regina in the flashbacks. I wonder, like, had the curse been created in a way that Emma can't use her own magic on the sword that she wants? That's sort of like Regina, she has to use somebody else's skills to do what she wants for her. Yeah, I think it could very well be. I, I, I do think um, I, I do where I see this potentially going is uh, Emma needing to lure. Sorry, Dark Swan uh, trying to lure Arthur down there to remove the, the sword. Um, the, a twist could be that, you know, because Excalibur showed who the the ruler of the land was 
the true ruler of the land was able to remove the sword from the stone because we're in a different land now. Uh, potentially is a different person who's able to remove the sword from the stone. You know, Regina's the mayor of the town. As the leader of the realm, as the mayor, is she the one that has to be able to remove Excalibur from the stone? Uh, so I'm, I'm interested to see where this goes. Yeah, I'm very excited this one, especially, again, maybe it's because it, it was led with the theme of the episode, but the last thing Dark Clippy said was that if you want to get that sword out, it comes with a price. And I wonder, you know, will it be setting in a sacrificial lamb a la Sir Kay to take the sword out and then immediately get vaporized. I'm assuming not because she'll probably they'll probably want to utilize a main character, but I'm wondering what is the price and does it involve a fury coming for them like 30 days later to come take to take someone away. The fury really needs to time this so that really to grab in, in terms of uh taking some then you get on the boat. If you don't want to have to kidnap somebody and then wait like you know two weeks, right days of the moon, and just kind of hide for two weeks. That's that's really not kind of the, the best way to probably do the job. Yeah, absolutely not. Kurt, you have anything else you want to talk about this episode before we start wrapping things up? No, I'm good. All right. So if you guys out there have uh, any ideas what the price might be for the sword, or if you have your own uh, power ranking suggestions for our CGI creatures, or if you uh, want to, if you have any ideas about how to decorate your dopies that you may have uh, about in the yard as the leaves fall in this autumn, you have several ways to reach out to us. As always, you can leave comments on post show recaps itself on the page specifically. Uh, if, by the way, if you have not yet, please subscribe to our iTunes feed, our Once Upon a Time only feed. You can do so by going to poshowrecaps.com slash once iTunes. Again, that's poshowrecaps.com slash once iTunes. While you're there, uh, give us a rate and review if you want to. It will go in a giant book that uh, Henry is currently writing as we speak, hopefully not breaking a pen as we go along. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter. Kurt, how can people find you on Twitter? I am at Kurt Clark with two C's on Twitter. And I am at a Mike Bloom type as always. And while you're tuned into Post Show Recaps, check out all the other great stuff that's going on. Uh, Most Show Recaps uh, had an, a, its second episode last weekend uh, talking the Muppets and the Leftovers with Jessica Lee. Speaking of the Leftovers, Josh and Antonio are back to recap that. It started premiering this week. Uh, we'll see if as many people uh, appear disappeared from the world <laughs> as the uh, Camel Oceans appeared in Storybook. That is still a number that is yet to be determined uh and there's always coverage of snl seinfeld fear the walking dead just wrapped up so again as the moniker says we are just getting started here on post show recaps but unfortunately we must finish this podcast kirk clark can we come up with a hashtag for people who have made it all the way through oh i, I did a quick search on balls tuesday we're not going to use that as a hashtag good call <laughs> um in honor of the Fury and everybody joining together to defeat it, uh, maybe we go with hashtag Soul Buffet. Oh, I like that. Uh, just make sure you don't fill up on bread at the Soul Buffet. Uh, so has- yeah, Don, Don's bread would not like that. No. So hashtag Soul Buffet. If you made it all the way to the end. Uh, thank you guys, as always. Uh, this season has been off to a really fun start. I'm really excited to see how, how where it goes next. We will be back next week to recap episode three. So again, Soul Buffet, if you made it all the way to the end. And remember, if you're waiting for a uh, certain moon phase just remember you only need to make uh, 10 minutes for it to happen take care everyone bye bye